Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. When you think of a social worker, what comes to mind? Is it an overweight, middle-aged woman sitting behind a desk giving out food stamps? Or a callous police wannabe removing kids from innocent parents? Well, since you're listening to the Social Work Podcast, I suspect you have a more realistic and generous image of social workers. In fact, social workers come in all shapes and sizes and provide a greater variety of services in a greater variety of settings than any other helping professional. But the one thing that all social workers have in common is that we were trained in what we call the strengths perspective. When social workers take a strengths perspective, they look at a client's strengths, capabilities, and resources. They ask themselves, what do these clients have going for them that will help them to successfully negotiate their current situation? The strengths perspective is one of the reasons that social workers can work successfully with so many different types of clients. There is a downside, however, to taking a strengths perspective. Some social workers ignore the problems or deficits, wrongly believing that if we only look at the positives, good things will happen. Some see social workers as Pollyannas, who ignore the realities of our clients' lives, thus perpetuating social inequalities, putting band-aids on what's going on. And perhaps most importantly for this podcast, some schools of social work ignore the more dangerous aspects of social work in pursuit of training students to see the best in clients. And there are dangerous aspects of social work. The recent murder of a Boston-area social worker, allegedly by her 19-year-old client, highlights a problem that social work as a profession has yet to adequately address, the problem of client violence. And that's the topic of today's podcast. Regardless of practice setting, Social workers encounter clients who are violent or have the potential for violence. When I worked at the local community mental health agency in Austin, Texas, we had a code that we would use to page backup when a client was escalating or had become violent. What we would do is we'd call the receptionist and ask to speak with Dr. Red. The receptionist would then make a building-wide announcement that Dr. Red was needed in a particular office. And everyone in the building knew that Dr. Red was a code for backup, so that the escalating client or the violent client wouldn't feel like they were about to be pounced on by dozens of uh, angry, overprotective social workers, we would mute our own phone so as not to alert the client that help was on the way. And this allowed us to continue our own intervention until backup arrived. I came to find out that this type of code or alert system was fairly common in agencies. Why? Because keeping ourselves and our clients safe is one of the most basic functions of social work. Despite the importance of this topic, there's relatively little information available to social workers. For example, the National Association of Social Workers has no guidelines for dealing with violent and aggressive clients. So, in today's podcast, I talk with Dr. Christina Newhill, a nationally recognized expert on client violence and the author of Client Violence and Social Work Practice, Prevention, Intervention, and Research, published in 2003 by the Guilford Press. Dr. Newhill is an associate professor at the School of Social Work and the University of Pittsburgh. She received her Ph.D. in social work from the University of California, Berkeley, 
and she has over 10 years of mental health practice experience, primarily in psychiatric emergency and inpatient services. Her primary interests are in community mental health services and the care and treatment of clients with severe and persistent mental illness, with a particular interest in the assessment of violent behaviors. Dr. Newhill's articles have been published in the top social work and psychiatric journals. Her research has been funded by local and federal agencies, including the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Mental Health. In today's podcast, Dr. Newhill defines client violence, talks about why social workers should be concerned with client violence, and identifies which social workers are at greatest risk for violence. She discusses some ways to assess a client's potential for violence, how to intervene with a violent or potentially violent client, and identify some strategies for increasing worker safety. We ended our interview by talking about existing research and resources for social work educators. And as always, if you're interested in more information about the topic presented in today's podcast, just go to the Social Work Podcast website where you'll find links to newspaper articles and resources specifically on the topic of client violence. And now, on to the interview with Dr. Christina Newhill and client violence. So, Christina, thanks so much for being here and talking with us today about client violence. I was wondering if you could start out by defining what is client violence. That's a good question. Um, There are actually many different definitions of client violence um, that have been, you know, reported in the research. And I think just defining violence in general is difficult. You know, what are the parameters? What, you know, what's considered violent and what's considered simply aggressive? Um, I think that there are some forms of uh, interpersonal violence that almost everyone would agree would be violence. Say one person strikes out at the other and makes contact, causing an injury. You know, most people would certainly classify that as violence. But what would you call it if someone strikes out at someone else but they miss, you know, the other person ducks? Um, I would still consider that violence because the intent was to make contact, but, you know, it was just fortuitous that the contact wasn't made. I also include threats as violence, and most investigators do. And the reason is because... um, Threats, although not all threats lead to violence, what the research has shown is that most violence is preceded by a threat. So uh, threats are significant. Um, The psychological impact of being threatened um, is often quite significant. So threats are usually included. Some investigators also include verbal abuse. Um, Other people don't. Some people sort of lump verbal abuse and threats together. So, you know, there's kind of a debate in the field. And then finally, some investigators, and I've included this in my research, um, include property damage as violence um, because it often goes along with other kinds of aggressive behavior and is common in settings where um, other forms of violence are common. For example, an adolescent residential treatment center where property damage is very common, but so are threats and, and physical violence. So in my research, I define violence as being either an actual physical attack an attempted physical attack, a threat, or property damage. So why should social workers be concerned about client violence? I think that social workers need to be aware of the reality of practice today, which includes client violence. And one of the reasons that it's important for social workers to be aware of client violence is that it's relatively common. 
Um, and it's, it, it is sort of like the elephant in the room often at clinical meetings. Um, everybody knows that it's an issue, but people really don't talk about it because they don't know what to do about it. Um, in the research that I conducted, uh, 58% of a sample of 1,600 social workers that I surveyed reported at least one incident of violence at some point in their career. And the majority of them reported multiple incidents. And so, um, fortunately, fatalities or serious injuries are rarer, although they are occurring more and more frequently. Um, and what I think is disturbing is that oftentimes client violence isn't dealt with or it's not acknowledged until a tragedy occurs. And what I would like to see is for the social work profession to be more proactive rather than reactive. So the first reason why social workers, I think, need to be aware of client violence is the fact it is common. Secondly, when it occurs, it can have a significant impact on both the client and the worker. Experiencing an incident of violence, and those of us who work with victims of, of violence in general and trauma, know that oftentimes um, a trauma reaction occurs. And, um, you know, social workers have told me that they often have, they felt depressed, they felt anxious. Um, many of the respondents in my study reported that it wasn't the incident itself even that caused the trauma reaction as much as the lack of support and responsiveness of their agency or their colleagues that that just compounded things. And so uh, and some of my respondents said that they left social work or left public services because of the incident. So it also can have the effect of losing good social workers to the profession. And I think the last reason why it's important is that allowing client violence to occur hurts clients. I think what we have to bear in mind is that once a client strikes you, you know, from that point on, that client is going to be labeled a violent client and their care is going to be modified. Um, certain services may be closed to them. Um, there may be practitioners unwilling to see them, and they will be labeled as a violent client. So it really hurts clients, and I think that um, to prevent violence is not just a service for ourselves, but it really serves our clients well as, uh, in addition. Are some social workers more at risk for client violence than others? Yes, that's what the research tells us. Um, and I might back up for just a minute and just share what my particular study involved because then I can report some specifics from that. Um, I was concerned about the issue of client violence many, many years ago, in large part because of my own practice experience where I both witnessed as well as experienced numerous incidents of clients' violence. Now, I was working in psychiatric emergency and inpatient settings, which tend to be high-risk settings. And so I thought, well, perhaps this is just an issue for our type of settings, you know, I mean, is it broader than this? And what I discovered when I started to look in the literature is there really wasn't anything out there, that no one had really studied that in this country. Now, um, in the UK, there had been a number of studies, but the extent to which those could be generalized to the US, I just didn't know. So, you know, after I went back to school and got my doctorate, uh, one of the first studies that I conducted was a study of client violence towards social workers. And for that study, I did a random survey of 1,600 NASW members. And I, out of that, out of the 1,600 questionnaires, I got 1,129 back. So I got a 71% return rate. So for those of you listening to this that know survey research, know that that is unusual. And so what that it's told... It's unusually high. 
high. It's unusually high. That's correct. Um, and so that told me that the topic touched a button for the respondents. And so um, who is more at risk than others? I can. What I can do is share what I found out from my research, and other researchers, uh, their findings have been uh, pretty consistent with what I found. Um, what I found in my survey is that client violence occurred across all settings. There was no setting that was free of incidents, but certainly the proportion of social workers in different settings that reported violence differed. And as I looked at the numbers, I divided the settings roughly into high risk, moderate risk, and lower risk. Um, the highest risk settings included, and this didn't surprise me too much, um, at the very top, criminal justice. Well, that's not terribly surprising because criminal justice serves individuals who may, you know, come into the services with problems with aggression. Secondly was drug and alcohol services. Again, not terribly surprising because we know that, you know, uh, drug and alcohol, alcohol in particular, is a disinhibitor and can is often associated with violent crime. And then third is children and youth services or child welfare services. So in those three settings, criminal justice drug and alcohol and child welfare, 75% or more of the respondents that identified those settings as being their practice setting reported at least one incident of violence. Moderate risk settings involved uh, individuals who reported between 54 and 75 percent of the respondents reported violence, and this included mental health services, developmental disabilities, school social work, and family services. And then at the bottom, in terms of the lowest risk services, was services to the aged, but even there, 44 percent of the respondents had experienced violence. The finding that was particularly striking, though, from the data was the difference between male social workers and female social workers in terms of uh, the reported prevalence of violence. Across all types of violence, property damage, threats, attempted attacks, and, uh, and actual attacks, male social workers were far more likely to report incidents of violence than females, and for those who reported violence, they reported greater numbers of incidents. So where only uh, 27% of male social workers reported no incidents of violence, twice that number, 48%, or almost twice that number of female social workers reported no incidents. But if we look at the numbers of incidents uh, for actual physical attacks, on average, female social workers reported two actual physical attacks. Male social workers reported nine physical attacks. Now, the question is, of course, what could explain this? Well, one answer that the data was able to show is that male social workers were more likely to work in the highest risk settings. So they were more likely to work for criminal justice services, drug and alcohol services, and surprisingly, child welfare services. At least I found that surprising. But I think that it goes further than that. Anecdotally, many of the male respondents told me that they were more likely to be assigned violent, aggressive clients than their female counterparts. And when a client did become violent or aggressive, they were often called in to deal with the situation. So I think what's happening is that agencies are using male social workers as a kind of informal security force. But the disturbing thing about that is that the male social workers reported that they weren't being given additional training, nor were they given, you know, quote unquote, hazard pay for taking on this additional risk. And they really felt that they had no, no choice or many of them said they felt that it was their responsibility, that they should take on this additional risk. So I think that that's um, a finding that we as professional social workers and agencies really need to think about. You know, is this really just to be expecting male social workers to be doing this?
So I think that what we can conclude from this is really four things. First is client violence towards social workers is not a rare event. Rather, it's relatively common across practice settings. Secondly, risk does vary according to where one works. However, no setting is completely free of risk. Thirdly, male social workers are at significantly greater risk of experience client violence than female social workers. And one issue that we have not talked about yet is that experiencing an incident of client violence exacts an emotional toll on the social worker involved. And in my research, I looked at that and I asked my respondents um, how they felt emotionally during the incident and immediately afterwards. And it was very clear that um, the emotional toll was significant. So how did social workers react emotionally when they experienced client violence? Well, I was very curious about this because um, it seemed to me that um, experiencing client violence is a significant event. And so I was wondering not only how did social workers feel during and immediately following experiencing an incident of violence, but I also was curious as to what extent the incident may have affected their feelings about their profession and changes in their practice habits. And what I found was that social workers reported consider a considerable variety of emotions that they experienced. And the emotions vary depending upon the type of violence that they experienced. So, for example, social workers who experienced an incident of property damage overall uh, tended to feel angry. They were angry that the client had, you know, destroyed the property. Um, but as many of the respondents said, property can be replaced. It's not a person. So the predominant feeling was anger, some frustration. Uh, with threats, social workers predominantly felt scared and fearful and anxious. Not terribly surprising. A threat, threats left social workers feeling very anxious about what might happen. A threat implies that um, danger or violence may or may not occur. So social workers often left uh, feeling very frightened, not knowing if the client was going to carry through on the threat, not knowing how to respond to it, and feeling very helpless. Clients who experienced physical attacks were often angry, scared, and anxious, but they also reported three emotions that were rarely reported with property damage and threats. And this included feeling shocked and shook up, helpless and inadequate, and drained and exhausted. Many of the social workers who experienced physical attacks um, described reactions that were very similar to trauma reactions. I mean, I did not ask about specific, you know, criteria for trauma, but um, they often described, you know, not being able to sleep, having, you know, intrusive uh, recollections of the incident, and often feeling uh, very hurt that this had happened. Many of the respondents said things like, you know, I thought I had a good relationship with the client. You know, I, I don't understand why this happened. What did I do wrong? And blaming themselves for what had occurred. How do you assess a client's potential for violence, specifically towards the social worker? Well, it's important that ahead of time that you have an adequate knowledge base, particularly regarding um, risk factors, what we prefer to call risk markers. Um, and these are uh, factors or markers that um, tend to be associated with violent behavior. I mean, the odds are always in favor of the individual not behaving violently. And, um, 
you know, there's always a balance between risk markers and protective factors. And so that has to be taken into consideration as well. So, for example, one of the most powerful protective factors is good, uh, positive social support. So you may have a client that has a host of risk markers for violent aggressive behavior, but if they have people around them who care about them, who can provide them with resources and support and help them work through their problems and negotiate their difficulties, they may be able to come through whatever their crisis is without behaving in an aggressive way. So that's an important thing to bear in mind. And of course, um, increasing increasing social support and helping to, um, uh, you know, improve that for clients is something that social workers do very well. Now, a quick question. Uh, what's the difference between a risk factor, which is a commonly used term, in, and a risk marker? Okay, good question. Um, in the uh, uh, the risk assessment research and literature, risk factor suggests uh, predictive power. So if something is a risk factor, then it means that there's a causal effect. A risk marker means an associative effect. So the kinds of markers I'm going to mention um, don't necessarily predict that violence will occur with any level of certainty, but it, it elevates um, the risk level. Okay, so the more of these risk markers that somebody has, they're like red flags that you simply need to pay attention to. And I like to think of them as divided into three spheres. You know, as social workers, we talk about the biopsychosocial, and that's really the approach to looking at risk assessment. So we have... Um, um, individual clinical risk factors, which can be divided into demographic risk factors and clinical risk factors and biological risk factors. Then we have historical risk factors and environmental contextual risk factors. So there are a whole host of different things that you would look for that commonly are just part of a good psychosocial assessment. But they are also things that you just want to be alert for as you're reviewing uh, the client's records and information the families may give you and so forth. So you're just know what to be alert for. So if I were a clinician mm -hmm. and and uh, I had a client that was talking to me about previous violence in their life or, or them being violent uh, towards others, they might mention something that wasn't typically considered a risk factor, mm -hmm. right? But for them, it would be a risk marker. Because for them, it would be a red flag. Uh, this is something that has happened in the past. I should look out for this in the future. That's what we call a trigger. A trigger, okay. So, for example, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you mentioned uh, history of violence. Because of any single risk marker, having a history of recent repetitive violence probably has the greatest uh, predictive strength of anything. So um, if somebody has recently been violent, repetitively been violent, then you want to really pay close attention to that. Now, everyone has different circumstances surrounding their particular triggers for violence. And so for one person, it might be, you know, a fight with their mother. For another person, it might be being intoxicated. For another individual, it might be um, humiliating loss. And so as you ask clients about, you know, their history and, and, you know, whether they've ever been violent or aggressive towards someone, you want to ask about the circumstances. You know, what was the situation? Who was involved? What were they feeling at the time? So you can get a sense 
uh, what types of circumstance, circumstances for them elevates risk. And then, as a, a you know, one of your good social work interventions would be to try to help the client into a situation that is different from that and that will protect them um, and help to mitigate against any aggressive urges. So could you give some examples of risk markers? Sure. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. And... Um, you know, in my book, I talk about these risk markers in detail, and in particular, you know, why and how they operate as risk markers. But here's an example. Um, an environmental contextual risk marker would be peer pressure from peers who endorse violence. So you might have an individual, and this is particularly um, important when working with adolescents, um, and you're, you know, you're working with um, a teen who is lonely and who wants to belong to a group. And so um, there's a group that is willing to accept that you know, teen, you know, into their, into their group. But, um, that teen has to show that, you know, they're going to be part of that group by behaving violently and that violence is endorsed as a way of gaining power and gaining status. So here you have a kid who, un under other circumstances, might not behave violently, but engages in that because the group endorses that and really supports and reinforces that behavior. Um, another example of an environmental contextual risk marker would be potential victims that are accessible. Um, what I often tell my students is that I think all of us have the potential for violence given the right or wrong circumstances. Um, I think, you know, most of us might behave violently, you know, to defend ourselves or to defend our child um, if our child was being, you know, hurt by somebody or attacked by somebody. For many of our clients, um, interpersonal violence occurs only in certain interpersonal contexts. So you may be working with a client um, who's only violent toward a particular family member because they have a long-standing animosity with that family member. Well, as a social worker, then what you would do if you want to prevent violence from occurring is you don't suggest that that client go home and live with that particular family member. You know, you have them live with somebody else. You know, or you have a client who maybe has made a threat to hurt their mother. Um, then what you would want to do is to, you know, try to separate that client and that mother and have the client go somewhere else until you can work with the client and the mother and try to sort out what's going on. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of what we would call risk markers, and they differ from individual to individual in terms of, of you know, what the uh, particular factors are that are involved in that particular marker. So you mentioned there were differences between risk factors and risk markers, mm -hmm. and you also said that there were, the, you said that a, a, a good assessment the biopsychosocial assessment is really the best thing to do. Are there are there any guidelines? Yes, there are guidelines, um, and I have uh, rather detailed guidelines in my book. But let me just share, you know, in a very summary fashion, what some of them are. Um, the first guideline is you want to, before you meet with the client, and this is just kind of good clinical practice, to find out as much background information as you can, because many of these so-called risk markers are are going to be present in the history of that client in the psychosocial history. So you want to um, review available documents, any clinical records, um, any history of past hospitalizations. You know, why would that be important? Well, because of our civil commitment criteria, which are danger to self or others. So if someone has been in the hospital, particularly involuntarily, um, that's a red flag, you know, that, you know, what landed that person in the hospital? You know, were they a danger to others, you know, or, or even a danger to self? Because you want to pay attention to that as well. You want to see if there are 
are any criminal justice records, you know, um, any history of arrests or incarcerations? Um, is there any history of violence toward others? And you don't just want to know if there's a history or not, but you want to know what those circumstances are. Um, you know, is there any history of uh, your client being a victim of abuse? You know, because many times people who are victims of violence and abuse, um, you know, they may learn that violent behavior is a way to solve problems. It's a way to get your way. You know, maybe they've been a victim, but then they may turn that around and may become a perpetrator. Um, then I have a number of guidelines for the clinical assessment of the client, and I'll just mention one of them. Um, you know, when you're assessing a client, you know, under all circumstances, you use all your senses. You know, you use your, you know, what you see, what you hear, what you smell. Oftentimes, you can tell if someone's intoxicated because you smell alcohol or you smell marijuana and so forth. So you want to notice anything significant about the client's physical appearance suggestive of a risk of violence. For example, does the, does the client show any scars or any tattoos that may have particular significance or may suggest that the client has been in fights. Um, so you want to pay attention to that. I know when I was working in California, um, uh, if I saw a client that had uh, a teardrop tattooed in the corner of his or her eye, what that meant in California was that you had spent one year in the California Youth Authority. And for an adolescent to be in the California Youth Authority, there was inevitably a history of violent or aggressive behavior. Now, in other parts of the country, that teardrop drop means that you've killed somebody. So, you know, you have to be cognizant of the meaning of dress patterns and tattoos and so forth as you begin to go about your assessment. So, Christina, when I worked at the crisis intervention unit, it would not be uncommon for the mental health deputies to bring in a kid who had a, a known history of psychiatric illness, and they'd bring them into the mental health center as opposed to the detention center because they're trying to be sensitive of this kid's psychiatric disorder. So my question for you, though, is how do you intervene with a client who appears to be escalating or who is actually violent? That can be a very anxiety-provoking situation for a clinician. Uh, in those kinds of situations, you may have been there from the beginning, or it may be, you know, as you're suggesting, an incident happened out in the community and, you know, the individual was being brought in. Um, I think it's important to approach the situation in a calm and relaxed kind of way and to open up attempting to engage the client by just simply commenting on the obvious. You seem really upset. That sounds very simple, but the purpose of that is it lets the client know that you're trying to understand their feelings. And I think that one of the most powerful tools that you can use in such a situation is empathy. Um, you know, many clients who have problems with aggression and violence don't get much empathy from others because of their behavior. And so you're going to give them a different experience. You know, you're going to give them the message that um, you're not going to reject them because of what they've done. You want to understand where they're coming from. And so after you sort of comment on the obvious, then it's very important that you introduce yourself. You know, they may not know where they are. They may not know who you are. Um, you know, they may have been sort of, you know, brought in in, you know, a very, uh, you know, sort of strong-armed kind of way. And so they're entitled to know who you are, what your position is, and what you're going to do.
Um, and it's very important to let them know, you know, your reason for being there, um, explain, you know, what their rights are, be very honest in their communication, and then invite them to tell you what happened, what brought them in here, and listen to them. And it's clients who have problems with violence often have difficulty in expressing themselves verbally. If they were facile in expressing themselves verbally, they might be able to resolve their problems that way. Um, and so the client may struggle a little bit. And so it's real important that you just be patient and you listen and you allow them to tell their story. Okay. And empathizing with the client doesn't mean you're condoning what they did. Um, it simply means that you understand they're frustrated, they're angry, you know, whatever the feelings seem to be. And after they've had a chance to tell their story, then you can tell them your understanding of the situation and explain to them where things sit now and what's going to happen next. I found that simply listening to people, empathizing with their feelings can go a long way in helping someone um, de-escalate, you know. Um, if people feel that, you know, their welfare is really what you're concerned about and you're there to really um, support their best interests, oftentimes they'll respond in kind. This is not to say that you don't want to take precautions, you know. So let's say that a client is brought in by the police and they're in restraints. And very often what the individual will say is, can you tell the police to take the restraints off. Um, you know, you may want, you think, oh, well, I'm going to need to do that in order for the client to trust me. And I think you have to think first, are you going to feel safe if those restraints are removed? And it's perfectly fine to say no. And what you can say to the client is, I understand that it feels awful to be restrained. Right now, I don't know enough about the situation to make that decision, so why don't we talk a little bit first, and then we can talk later about removing the restraints. And if the client hears that you, you know, empathize with their situation um, and that this is something that could be revisited, oftentimes, you know, they will accept that. I know that in children's services, one of the things that we would do is uh, we, would, we would end up having to restrain we, the, the clinicians, would have to restrain kids who were getting violent. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we would say is, I'm going to need you to not fight for a minute, and then we will start to let go. Basically, we will, we will get off you or we will loosen the basket hold or whatever it happened to be. And in part, we did that because it showed some self-control. It wasn't that there was any magical thing about the minute marker that I know of, but it was a way that to demonstrate that, okay, you can control yourself for a minute. And for mm -hmm. a kid, a minute is an eternity, especially if you're being restrained by like six guys. Um, is that similar to what you're talking about in terms of uh, somebody coming in restraints? I said, I want, you know, release me. And, and you say, well, let's, let's, let's make sure that you're not uh, at risk right now for lashing out. Right. It's very similar. And one of the things that I have always been impressed with as I have worked with people is that oftentimes clients are quite honest about their ability to control their behavior. So I would sometimes ask a client, if the restraints are removed, um, are you sure that you're going to be able to control your behavior? And many times clients would say, I don't know, or I don't think so. And so then I would say, well, then maybe it would be best to leave them on for now with the implication that we'll just take this one step at a time. 
One last point I want to make is never make promises that you cannot keep, and I'll explain why I say that.、Um, you may encounter a client who will say, "Well, I'll talk to you if you promise that、um, I won't be given any medication, or if you promise that I won't have to go into the hospital."、Um, it's tempting to say, "Oh, I promise that," because the client's saying that you know, then he or she will talk to you.、Um, but it's important not to do that because at that point, at the beginning of the interview, you don't know what's going to happen, and. And you don't want to be in a situation where you promise the client, "No, you won't be hospitalized," and then you have to hospitalize the client, because not only will that rupture the trust that that client may have built with you, but you represent. The mental health system, or the healthcare system, or the child welfare system, and that client will lose trust in not only you but services in general. And so, you know, that may undermine、um, the probability that the client will be engaged and will receive services. So, what you can say instead is simply that. You know, I don't know what the outcome of our interview is going to be, and I don't want to make a promise to you that I'm not able to keep. Let's talk more about the situation, and then you and I can discuss what the options might be, so that you take a collaborative approach. And if the client realizes they're going to have a say in things, or at least they're going to be listened to, then oftentimes you can move forward. So my last question is: If a if a social work educator was listening to this podcast and wanted to integrate content about client violence into either bachelors of social work or masters of social work courses, what kinds of resources or information could you provide that might help them? And this could even include some of the research that's been conducted in the area. Okay,、um, there hasn't actually been a lot of research. In the 1980s, the British Association of Social Workers、uh, sponsored a number of studies in Great Britain that sort of opened up the conversation about this issue.、Um, studies in the U.S. up until the early 80s were pretty much confined to psychiatry. So there were studies about client violence, and you know, especially on inpatient units、um, that were published in psychiatric journals. But then, in about the mid '80s,、uh, sort of the early '90s, there were a number of studies in the U.S.,、um, predominantly in child welfare, because the issue of risk assessment and、um, uh, safety in home visits is very central to child welfare work. And so,、um, child welfare services, I think, have really been ahead of the game in terms of not only doing research but creating risk assessment protocols.、Um, however,、um, much is left to be done in terms of Testing the validity of these protocols, and I think here's where the research needs to go. I think we know by now、uh, that you know client violence is is, is relatively prevalent. You know, it's an issue for practice. It's something that we need to address,、um, and we have come up with a lot of clinical strategies, you know, and a lot of practical strategies for increasing safety. What we don't know is how effective these strategies are, and I think that's where the research has to go next. And、um, that's not going to be easy because it's going to Require you know some kind of a longitudinal design that can follow you know that can you know get a baseline assessment.
assessment of the incidence of violence, employ some strategies, and then follow over time the extent to which uh, those strategies seem to be working. But I think that's where we need to go. Um, and so hopefully in the future, and perhaps through an organization um, such as OSHA, because there's increasingly a concern about workplace violence in general, and the business community has taken that very seriously. So I think it may be a multidisciplinary kind of uh, uh, research agenda, um, and hopefully that, that will occur, because I think that's where we need to go. And so if I were a, uh, an instructor in a BSW course, I was teaching a BSW course, and I wanted to integrate uh, information other than the research findings, because it doesn't sound like there are many, what sort of resources are out there? Uh, for my students, um, for designing in a whole course about it, or just putting a little bit of information into, say, a foundation course? Right. Um, I think that there are several junctures in the curriculum where information on safety and risk assessment can go. Um, I think that uh, some information should go in the foundation curriculum in terms of just making students aware, you know, the safety is an important issue and just kind of basic strategies for, um, for safety when working with clients and, you know, when going out in the field and so forth. Um, more advanced clinical strategies for working with involuntary clients, working with, you know, violent and aggressive clients, clients who may be, uh, you know, have problems with substance abuse and, you know, severe mental illness, might go in more advanced practice classes. But I think that, you know, one could also develop a very interesting course in this area. And in fact, um, in my book, um, at the end of the book, I talk about that and have a model syllabus in the back of the book that sort of can walk the reader through how such a course might look, you know, and what, and one could actually pick and choose the various modules and kind of plug them in. And I have, you know, in the book, um, you know, uh, case analysis exercises, discussion questions, readings, and so forth. Um, so I think the important thing is to just have the material somewhere. Um, and I know when I first started out in this, uh, sometimes social work educators would uh, say, well, you know, are you sure you really want to talk about this because this might frighten students? Um, and I really think it's it's the opposite, that it empowers students. I think students become frightened when they're not prepared and they go out and then they encounter a client who, say, is making a threat and they don't know what to do. And so, you know, the student who's, you know, and the practitioner who is prepared to meet the unexpected is in the best position to not just protect themselves but protect their clients as well and provide the best services. It sounds like your book is an excellent resource, not just for the research, but also for um, educators uh, who might be teaching, as well as, of course, for students who want to learn, or, or clinicians out in the field, actually. Uh, so uh, if it's okay with you, we'll put a link onto the Social Work Podcast website uh, for uh, where, where, where uh, listeners can get a copy of the book. Sure, that would be great. And I also can uh, post some sort of summary material on the website that I use in my workshops that might be useful to the listeners. Okay, great. Well, all that information can be found at the Social Work Podcast website at socialworkpodcast.com. And Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about this really important topic of client violence. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.